the Irish Times Inside Business podcast in association with Euronext Dublin, the new home of the Irish Stock Exchange. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week we'll be talking about the row over state pensions that has erupted among political parties in the general election campaign. And Joe Brennan will join me from Davos for an update on the 50th World Economic Forum. But I'm going to start with the general election. We're into the second week of the campaign and pensions have emerged as a major issue with voters. Under current rules, the uh, people who retire at 65 are entitled to a contributory state pension at age 66. This is due to rise to 67 next year and to 68 in 2028 under a plan that was devised by the Fine Gael Labour Coalition in 2011. And it was designed, of course, to ease the financial burden on the state at a time when the population is ageing and people are living longer lives. Now, concerns have been raised as to how workers who are forced by their employers to retire at 65 actually bridge the gap to the state pension as it stands. Workers would have to apply for the Job Seekers Allowance, which is worth €45 less per week than the state pension. So this has become a hot issue on the doorsteps with a variety of solutions being offered by the various political parties. Now, to help me tease this thorny issue out is Dominic Coyle of the Irish Times, joins me in studio, and Fianna Fáil TD for Limerick City, Willie O'Dea, is on the phone. Dominic, I'm going to start with you. You've been writing about this uh, pensions issue this week. What exactly is the problem? I guess, uh, like most things to do with pensions, there were changes made a long time ago that nobody paid a blind bit of notice to, uh, but suddenly the next year is looming fast Mm. and suddenly it's become a real issue. Uh, as you say, the issue dates back to 2011. The first change came in in 2014. Uh, but in the start of 2021, you will have to be 67 in order to get your, your state pension. And at the moment, most private sector workers certainly are uh, forcibly retired at 65. Uh, and while they can go on to Job Seekers Benefit, which, as you explained, is, gives you somewhat less money, that only lasts for a maximum of nine months. So it might have got you over the hump when the, the age of 66 but if it's going to 67, then it runs out, and you're then on to means-tested benefits. Uh, so so that's a problem. The problem for the politicians is it's all come home to roost because, obviously, the politicians knew back in 2011 and 2014 that the, the private sector work contracts forced people out at 65. But because well, politicians themselves and the public sector were covered by their own lo- special pension arrangements... They, they decided that this wasn't something that they need to unduly worry themselves with at that time as a matter of urgency. Yeah, now it is. Explain how public sector workers are, are covered because they have to retire at 65 in the normal course of events. No, they, well, they don't anymore. There's been changes recently. They don't actually have to retire to 70 now. But in 1995, anyone who joined the public service after April 1995 started paying PRSI at the full rate, the same as anyone else in the private sector. And as a result, quite rightly, they were entitled to benefits, welfare benefits and the state pension, the same as everyone else. However, at that time, an arrangement was put in place to have what was called a supplementary pension. And this kicked in when, if for no no, um, reason that that was down to the retiree, they fell short on their state pension, as they would do in this case with it not kicking into the 67, a supplementary pension kicked in to bridge the gap so that they wouldn't be out of pocket and that supplementary pension will be paid out of the same taxpayers' funds, the same social insurance fund that all the other pensions come out of anyway. Okay. Talk us through some of the numbers on this. How much does the state pension cost us per year? And if they're to uh, leave it alone, as it were, not extend it out to 67, 68, what would that cost us? Well, uh, Willie, who is the, the social protection spokesman for, for Fianna Fáil himself, said earlier on the radio this, this week that the government's own figures said that 
to run a transition pension, that's simply to cover the gap between 65 and 66, the original transition pension, would uh, would cost £150 million a year. To decide to defer the increases to age 67 in 2021 and to age 68 in 2028 would, he says, cost a further 460 or 470 um, million per annum. Uh, he says those are figures given to him by the government. The Department of Social Welfare says the pensions cost them 35% of all their spending and that the figures are rising exponentially. And certainly the last actuarial report of the Social Insurance Fund, which is where all the money to pay pensions comes from, says that, that it is going to go into deficit quite rapidly over the next number of years, and certainly by 2071, which is as far out as they look, they reckon the deficit could be as much as $335 billion. And that's money that'll have to be found somewhere, or else people won't get their pensions. Uh, Willie O'Dea, thank you for joining us. Um, you're on the line from Limerick. Um, this is obviously a big issue on the doorsteps with voters. It is, actually. Um, I've just come in from canvassing now and uh, it was raised again and again and again today and uh, similarly last night. So it has become a very major issue. I mean, it was due, as Dominic has said there, it, the change was due to kick in next year in 2021 to, 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 to increase the pension age, pension entitlement age from 66 to 67 and in, in 2008 to go up again to 68. As I said, this was coming in 2001. Nobody adverted very much to it of the government or uh, the government never did any sort of a public publicity uh, campaign to warn people of 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 the fact of the fact that this is impending. But I mean, people have have latched onto it and they have uh, copped onto it and they've said, well, you know, as Dominic has said there, for the first nine months, if you're forcibly retired, say at sixty five, because of the provisions of your contract, you have to retire at sixty five. For the first nine months, you will get job seekers benefit, which you know, if you have the appropriate contributions, that qualify you for job seekers benefit. Whereas for the last three months, then, uh, as things stand at present, whereas the last three months you have to look for job seekers allowance, and that, as he said, is means tested, and you have to sort of submit your statements of your means, and you have to sign on at the labour exchange, etc. Now people sort of uh, were inclined to say, okay, that's not if we can we can just about put up with that for three months, but now the prospect of doing it for fifteen months is looming, and I think this is this is probably what has generated much of the debate surrounding this at the moment. So what's the Fianna Fáil solution? Well, what we're proposing now essentially is the government, I mean, the, the figures that um, Dominic gave there, they, they, were supplied by me, they were supplied to me by the Department of Social Protection um, uh, uh, in parliamentary replies. The last one was on the t- uh, 10th of December last, which is quite quite uh, very much up to date. And it says that basically to increase the pension age from 60, not to increase the pension age from 66 to 67, will result in a loss of savings uh, to the government of 217 million, uh, 217.5 million uh, per annum. Now, I'm assuming that if you went off, you, you let that run out to 2028, and again, you stuck at 66, that you know the, the cost of that would double, but we have to we have to work on those figures. An earlier reply, an earlier reply um, in relation to the uh, transition pension, which used to be called the old retirement pension, where people got where, where people got the pension at sixty five when they retired, to, if you had sufficient contributions, which again was the same rate as the contributory old age pension. The, the, the net cost of that, I think, is one hundred and fifty million. 
So what we're proposing now is a two-pronged approach, basically. Uh, the people who, you know, are compelled by their contracts to retire at 65 will get a transition pension to bring them up to the to, to, to old age, pension age, whatever that may be. And secondly, that we will uh, abolish, we will, we will outlaw uh, the practice of compelling people to retire at 65. The government says that that can't be constitutionally done. I profoundly disagree with that. And there are several precedents for inserting other terms in contracts which already exist. I mean, labour law is full of new contract terms in contracts which already exist. So there's no there's no, no, no compelling reason why we can't do it here. Now, what I would envisage, we're also saying that people who reach the age of 65 who are not contractually bound to retire, if they can't continue to work, due to ill health or due to the fact that they're in, the, in you know, doing heavy work such as workers in the construction industry, etc., they just can't continue, they should also be able to qualify for the transition pension. So anybody who is able to work uh, at 50, 65, 66, 67, etc., um, they won't qualify for this transition no, pension? No, no, they would have to They would have to demonstrate well, You know, I mean, in some cases, it'll be pretty obvious that people, people come to me all the time from the construction sector who said that, you know, they're, they're, they're literally worn out at 65, sometimes well before that, but they certainly wouldn't be able to work after 65. Some See, people can't work beyond 65 due to ill health. Dominic? But, but, but most most workforces are contracted retired to forced to retire at 65. And what, I, what I'm wondering is if the transition pension comes back in the form, same sum as the state pension, sure, aren't we just rolling the clock back? Aren't we just creating the same problem for pensions and the social insurance fund going forward? Because we're not saving anything. Well, I think we will, actually, if you look at the second leg of our, our policy, because uh, if people are contractually, as you say, a, a, a great, very large cohort of the workforce in the private sector are contractually obliged to retire at 65, you remove that requirement. And I know, personally, I know lots and lots of people who want to work beyond 65, and many, an awful lot of them would opt to do so. And just to be clear, Willie, you're not proposing to uh, restore the retirement age uh, effectively to 65 or to leave it paused at 66. You're, no, you're going to let it go out to 68 as, uh, as is the current plan. No, I'm not, I'm not saying what we're going to do is we're going to do a review of the situation and look closely again at the figures because there's a bit of confusion about the figures to see how much exactly is this going to cost, how many people are going to be affected and where we're going to get the money. Because, I mean, Fianna Fáil, certainly if you look at our manifesto when it comes out on, on Friday, we will be committed to working within the fiscal space, which is estimated to be about 11 billion or so for the next five years. So all our expenditure will be from within that envelope and we've, we've, got, to, we've got to find room for this. This is, this is extra expenditure which maybe we didn't anticipate and it's obviously going to have to be found you know within the 11 million uh, parameter of course the problem is um, you might have that fiscal space right now but if there's a downturn in the economy and um, tax receipts go south uh, as they have done in, in the past you're still left with this uh, burden this annual very well, very substantial pensions burden well, you, you, of course. I mean, but you could say that about any, uh, you know, proposed extra expenditure. For example, we were proposing, as well as of the other parties, extra expenditure on health, extra expenditure on justice, etc. Uh, extra expenditure, of course, on housing. And you know, a downturn in the economy. That's based. That's based on the figures we have at the moment, which is all we can base base it on. I mean, obviously, if there's a downturn in the economy, everything changes. Yeah, sure. But you can stop building houses, or you can stop recruiting guards, um, as happened in the past. But you can't stop paying 
paying pensions, can you? You can't stop paying pensions, but of course it depends on the level at which you pay them and the age at which the, the, the pension kicks in. I, I am convinced, I know because of increased longevity and uh, you know, from my own anecdotal experience, I know that an awful lot of people would be delighted if the practice of outlawing, outlawing uh, compulsory retirement at 65 were introduced and they would take advantage of that and they would work on for another few years, which would, would reduce the pensions burden. I, I agree with you. I think an awful lot of people would choose to do so, but as, as you know, IBEC, among others, has been singularly silent, if not actively opposed, to any interference with the current uh, contractual arrangements that, that are in place. And certainly the presumption would be that any move to, to amend contractual arrangements would lead to, to an, a prolonged exercise through the courts. And God knows we know in this country that anything that goes through the courts is a prolonged exercise. And this is in the context of, of pensions where we, we've been talking about reforms such as auto enrolment since 2014. We're no nearer it. We've been talking about reform of the state pension to total contributions approach for the last four or five years. Nothing's happened. It's all fallen with the last oil. Reform of pensions in any way in this country doesn't happen. It gets talked about. Why, why should anyone believe, the voters who are angry now, why should they believe that anything actually will be done this time? Because something has to be done. I mean, obviously, it does. You have a, you have a crisis situation where only thirty five percent of the private sector, uh, you know, where sixty five percent of the private sector are dependent on the old age pension, contributory or non contributory, as their sole source of income in retirement. I mean, for many, many, many people, as you know, that would re- represent a huge drop in income, a huge falling off the cliff uh, at the age of of, of sixty five, at the age in which they retire. So, you know, we have to tackle this problem. I mean, we've been pushing very hard for auto, for the auto enrolment scheme to be get to get it up and going. The government produced a roadmap for the auto enrolment scheme, which we have a lot of difficulties with because there are very serious flaws in it. But the government has 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 moved very slowly in this matter, and they, they've they failed to meet their own timetables. Now, the minister had assured me repeatedly that in the first quarter of this year. Uh, provided the daughter had survived, that the, the total contribution system would be introduced. And she made an announcement shortly before Christmas that that was now put off for a year. So, you know, there's a certain lack of political will here. And uh, we, for our part, are determined to tackle it. I mean, I would be delighted to, to, go, to, to go in there and tackle it. It is a huge problem and uh, it's not going to be easy, but it does represent a significant challenge. Willie, I don't recall Fianna Fáil really campaigning hard on this issue before the general election, before it became an issue on the doorsteps. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, I really don't recall that. And of course, people will say, well, hold on, Fianna Fáil rated the National Reserve Pension Fund um, to part pay for the bailout. Well, look, I mean, the, the, the fact of the matter is this, I mean, who, who who created the National Pension Reserve Fund? We created the National Pension Reserve Fund and we did so in the teeth of huge opposition in the doll that wants us to spend everything and not put any, everything and not put anything away. Well, it's gone now. And I would, I would, I would, I would, yeah, but I'm just giving you the, the history of the thing and who created it and who built it up. And we were lucky we built it up because it was absolutely essential. I mean, God only knows what would have happened to the country had we not built that up and resisted the political pressure to spend it. But as a gas campaigning, let me point out here that as, as, as long ago as 2016, which is now three years ago, uh, more than three years ago, I produced legislation in the Dáil, which was passed at second stage, to outlaw these um, uh, the, the, the practice of compelling people to retire at 65. And the government simply 
put it into limbo and let it rest there and made no attempt to resuscitate it. So, you know, we, we, we produced legislation on that matter. We've also been, we've also submitted detailed proposals to the government on the auto-enrollment and how it should be done and how it should be operated and who should, who should, who should operate it. And, uh, we're still waiting for a response to those representations. So we've been pushing this as hard as we possibly can. I mean, pensions, as you, as you, you'll, you'll appreciate, pensions isn't a very politically sexy subject, but, uh, you know, we, we have been engaging with it and we have been We've also put forward proposals to prevent, uh, you know, solvent pen- employers who, have sol- who operate solvent pension schemes and who are very wealthy from walking away from their obligations to find contrib- defined benefit schemes. Again, that legislation has been let lapse. The government picked up part of our legislation, promised two years ago to put it into the social welfare bill. We've had three social welfare bills since, and the government haven't introduced any part of that. Yeah, well, ju- just in relation to outlawing. Um you know, having to retire at 65 uh, in contracts. I think the government has raised some constitutional issues there. They say there's some significant constitutional issues there. But anyway, if you get into government uh, next time around, it's, it's obviously something um, Fianna Fáil can tackle. Dominic, how many workers are going to be affected by this? Well, as Willie says, it's in the private sector, it's about, well, depending on the numbers you get, somewhere between 40 and 60% of private sector workers are relying purely on, on the state pension, purely. 40%, I think, is the most recent figure for purely on state pension. So there is there is absolutely no safety net for these people. They will get job seekers for, for nine months because if they qualify for the st- full state pension, they'll certainly qualify for job seekers. But that's only nine months. And after that, if come the beginning of next year, for a year and three months, they will have to um, go through means-tested benefits. And apart from anything else, it also means that people who have prided themselves on their whole working lives not having to rely on the state, not having to rely on benefits, suddenly having to rely on benefits and open all their most private uh, assets and savings and financial information to some anonymous person across a desk in a sort of way that really grates with them because they feel that they've made their contributions to what they were told was going to happen, that they would retire on a, on a pension of 65. And now, arbitrarily, the rules have been changed and they're the ones hanging out to dry. Willie, uh, TDs, as I understand it, can retire at 65. Um, this, um, you know, the uh, requirements that's going to be in place for public sector workers for 67 from next year and 68 from 2028 doesn't actually apply to TDs. Is that fair? No, it, well, well, obviously it's not fair. I mean, but uh, I mean, I, I didn't join. I didn't. I didn't seek to be elected at all for the money. I can assure you, uh, I could have. I could have made a lot more money elsewhere. And the system is there. If if the next government wants to change it, so be it. But can I make two points in relation to what Dominic said earlier on? First of all, the government's contention. That the 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 that outlawing these con- these these uh, compulsory retirement at sixty five contracts is is constitutionally defective is simply a smokescreen. I mean, they're simply using excuses for not doing anything. I mean, if you look at if you look at labour law, much of which has come from the uh, European Union, we have consistently put in new terms into already existing contracts. And there's been no constitutional difficulty about it whatsoever. The minister, I was on the radio with her the other morning, she muttered something about property rights. But as you know, property rights are covered under Article 43 of the Constitution. And the Article 43 of the Constitution clearly allows the state to interfere with property rights for, for the public good. And I think, you know, people who want to walk on beyond 65 with expertise and experience, uh, it's for the public good that they should be allowed to do so. Uh, in, in, in relation to the, to the general issue, I mean, we have to get on with, with auto-enrollment. Uh, 
we have to get we have to make a, a, a firm decision one way or the other on the retirement age and uh, you know it's going to cost money we're going to have to figure out how much it's going to cost and we're going to have to find out and we're going to wo- have to work out where we're going to how are we going to allow for this within the 11 billion parameter which as you rightly pointed out may very well change yeah sure now I think you're one of the people who's working beyond 65 am I right you are, <laughs> you are, you are, you are, and and uh, I'm at Lutton for punishment, and I'm 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 out here now canvassing very hard, looking looking to be working again for the next couple of years uh, beyond that age, and uh, you know I mean, but but, well, but I feel, I, feel safest, I want to do so. Safest seats in the country. It's just a question of how big your majority is, isn't it? Well, you've you, I think you've just lost me a couple of thousand votes now because <laughs> they'll, they'll all they'll all assume I'm safe and vote for somebody else. But no, like you know, you get you get basically in this business, you get you get out what you put in. I put in a lot of effort I, 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 I you know I, I work very hard at constituency level I do my very best as a spokesman in the doll and uh, you know it's entirely how many votes you're going to get or what majority you have or whether you have any majority is entirely a matter for the people and I would never presume sure. on, uh, on, on their goodwill Now an Irish Times uh, poll from earlier this week had uh, Fianna Fáil a couple of points ahead of uh, Fianna Gael and also a very significant poll showing that about three quarters of people want change and they feel that uh, more than half of them feel that um, um, this government is going in the wrong direction, as it were. So are you feeling confident about this election? Do you sniff victory in the air? Well, look, I, I always say it's 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 we're a week into the campaign. It's a bit early yet to be making predictions one way or the other. I mean, the polls will go up and down. And in my experience, I've fought many elections in the past, uh, the, you know, it'll 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 firm up in the last week or so. We'll have a better a better picture in the last week or so. I will recall the two thousand and seven general election where the whole thing literally changed in the last four or five days. All I can say is that you know, on the ground from canvassing, from the canvassing I've done so far, and I've canvassed across the social strata, there does seem to be certainly. That I would agree with the finding in the opinion poll that there's a huge desire out there for change. That does seem to me to be a significant swing, particularly against Fine Gael. I think where we're at is that people want change. They haven't yet quite made up their minds what sort of change they want, and that's what we, we have to convince them. We, you know, we have another two, two, two and a half weeks to convince them that the change should be in the form of electing sufficient Fine Gael TDs to head the next government. What would be a good result for Finfo? Uh, well, I, I don't want to get into figures, but sure, you know, a good result would be would be would be a, a significant increase in the number of seats we have in the doll at the moment. Uh, you know, it's very competitive out there now. You've got the Greens, you've got very strong independents. Sinn Féin is in the mix. The Labour Party seem to have recovered some somewhat in the certainly judging by the results of the local elections, particularly here in Limerick. So, you know, I mean, uh, nobody's going to get an overall majority, that's for sure. But to significantly up the number of seats we have and to be significantly Ahead of the next highest party, which would presumably be Fine Gael. that would be. That, I, I, I would regard that as a very good day out. And Sinn Féin performed very well in that poll earlier in the week at twenty one percent. What about going into government with them? Would you be in well, favour of that? No, no. I mean, our party policy is not to do with the Sinn Féin are still not ready for government because we're not sure who actually pulls the strings and who who is the final control in Sinn Féin. But just on your point about the poll, I mean, I must say that um, as I've been out canvassing fairly intensively for the last week, uh, I don't find that level of support for Sinn Féin. I may be very wrong and everybody might be might be hoodwinking me, etc., etc. I don't find that level of support for Sinn Féin. It may very well be there, but it's not immediately visible on the ground. All right, Willie, you mentioned that the manifesto will be published on Friday. Can you give us any insight into what else, on, from an economic uh, point of view, what else might be, might be in the hopper? 
Well, obviously, obviously, uh, there'll be. I, I think that the extra expenditure on health will be about two billion. There'll be extra expend over and above the normal expenditure. You know, accounting for demographies, except demography, etc., demographic change, etc. Uh, there's going to be a substantial increase in the uh, in the housing in, in in the housing section. You know, we have the, the well-flagged SSIA scheme. Uh, there probably will be proposals to bring to bring in some sort of a shared, you know, some version of the the old shared ownership scheme to enable people to get on the first rung of the housing ladder. There will have to be substantial expenditure on justice. Uh, now the figures are not available to me as yet, but um, it will all be done. We, we are determined that we will show in detail what the expenditure figures are, and it will all happen within. As I said, the envelope of 11 billion, which the Department of Finance has calculated as being the fiscal space for the next five years. And personal taxation? Personal taxation, there will be some reductions. I think there will be some room for reductions in personal taxation. But our our manifesto will, I suspect, I haven't seen the Fine Gael manifesto yet, but I suspect that our manifesto will be uh, concentrated much more heavily on investment rather than tax reduction. But there will be some tax reduction measures, yes. All right, Willie O'Dea, we wish you luck on the campaign trail. And Thank you very much uh, indeed. We might catch up with you after the election just to see how it all pans out. And my thanks also to Dominic Coyle. Thank you. Now, the 50th World Economic Forum is on this week in the Swiss Alpine village of Davos. Business and political leaders from around the world have gathered to consider the big issues of the day. And I'm glad to say that Joe Brennan of the Irish Times is in Davos and he joins me now on the phone. Um, Joe, you're very welcome. Tell us um, who's there and who's not there this year. Yeah, hi, Kieran. So I suppose the, the big thing for, uh, from an Irish perspective is that... Uh, over the last number of years, certainly since Fianna Gael first took uh, power in uh, 2011, that there's always been the Taoiseach and, and often the, uh, the, 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 the finance minister uh, has, has gone with them. This year is the first time that there is no kind of senior representation from the Irish government, given that the Taoiseach and obviously uh, the, the, the other ministers are heavily involved in the election campaign as we speak. Um, other kind of high-profile uh, people that would ordinarily go to Davos, uh, Dennis O'Brien and Bono, who's a, a perennial visitor to this uh, the, 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 the mountainside here in, in Davos, uh, are not here this year. So um, there's a few. Uh, IDA um, have a dinner uh, every Davos on, on the Thursday evening, and the teacher himself was supposed to be presiding over that, but uh, obviously he's not there this time. So uh, Phil Hogan, the uh, commissioner for the EU Commission for Trade, is stepping in and delivering a speech at the, the IDA dinner uh, tomorrow evening. Uh, a few others, um, Emma Teeling, um, a UCD professor, um, was here um, today. She was giving a, a presentation to a small group on the, the lifespan of bats. And um, I'll be writing on that uh, for tomorrow's paper. Well, we, we look forward to that, Joe. Um, now, Donald Trump, more importantly, was there and he was kind of the star turn on day one, wasn't he? Defending his e- economic record since becoming president. And of course, this on the eve of his impeachment trial in the US. Yeah, so Donald Trump um, surprised everyone two years ago by turning up uh, in Davos. He was kind of seen as, uh, this was not kind of seen as as his crowd, given his kind of protectionist kind of uh, stance, um, when this is obviously the home for globalisation and for... Uh, capitalism. For world leaders, exactly, capitalism. And people, you know, no, he is, he is an arch-capitalist, we must say. 
yeah, I mean, look, it, 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 capitalism is the name of the game here in, in Davos as well. It's just that it's supposed to uh, get capitalists together, get governments, get world leaders together to kind of improve the, the, the state of the world. That's kind of the state of objective of, uh, of, of Davos. But Trump, um, he missed last year, given that there was a, he was supposed to turn up, but he missed because there was a partial government uh, shutdown at the time. So he turned up again this year, unlike the last time where he was, kind of gave the, the closing address, he was one of the first to take the stage um, and he gave about a 30-minute speech, most of it going on and listing uh, all, all what he claims to be the, the economic kind of uh, improvement that's uh, taken place since he since he took charge. Uh, obviously, you had um, the fact-checkers out in, in force just fact-checking a, a number of his statements, but some things he was saying, he was saying were along the lines that for the first time in, in decades, uh, there was no longer a concentrated wealth in the hands of very few and fact checkers found obviously clearly the uh, statistics that show that the gap actually had widened and um, he also gave the grandiose uh, statement that um, we have the greatest economy we've ever had in history and again fact checkers uh, highlighted a number of things that would kind of point towards a kind of a mixed outcome on that front yeah okay now a couple of good lines from him i thought he said one he talked about the the U.S.-China trade deal that's been agreed, and he said something uh, to the effect that uh, Xi Jinping, the Chinese premier, he loves uh, China and I love the United States, but we both love a good trade deal. Yeah, and look, at he is about the trade deals. Um, this has taken 18 months to get to the phase one. Um, some would argue that phase one is not as, as locked in maybe as uh, had been kind of pitched at the very outset. Um, he has to obviously force through the uh, the second phase of that phase de- of, of, of the trade deal over the coming months. Okay. Again, he's got trade deals. I mean, he's met with the President of the European Commission yesterday, also in, in with um, the, the Irish Trade Commissioner, uh, Phil Hogan, and met with, U- I think, UK uh, representatives as well. He's talking about trying to secure uh, trade deals with the EU and with the UK this year. Yeah, okay. Now, Swedish teenager Greta Thunberg has been in Davos as well this week, and she's been campaigning, obviously, on issues around climate change over the past uh, while. What was her message to the business leaders who've gathered there? Yeah, again, it's not her first time here. She actually turned up last year um, took the 32-hour train journey from uh, Sweden to, to Davos. Um, she pitched a, ca- a tent outside Davos and was kind of, uh, basically set up a, a protest outside Davos. She was seen as a, a curiosity at that stage. Towards the end of the four-day period, she was brought in for a luncheon uh, with a few uh, luminaries, including uh, Bono, and was also uh, invited to uh, join one of the kind of final panels of the of, of, of Davos in 2019. This year, she's centre stage. She was one of the first to take uh, to the stage. Last year, she'd highlighted that our house is burning. She highlighted this year that our house is still burning. Um, she highlighted that, you know, while people say, we'll hear you, we'll take action, no action has been taken as far as she's concerned. Um, and it's up to uh, governments and business leaders to take action now. Does she impress you, Joe? Um, so she appeared on two occasions yesterday. She appeared on a, a on a panel uh, with a number of other young uh, campaigners. I suppose she wasn't as forceful on that. Um, I'm surprised that others actually took took up most of the speaking time. Um, when she spoke later on, when she had a prepared statement, um, she certainly was forceful. Right. And what did Trump have to say on climate change? 
Yeah, so Trump, um, most of the speech, as I said, was taken up by just expounding on the economic recovery, uh, as he would call it, over his uh, three years in office. But he did highlight, uh, he did take a swipe at the environmental profits of doom, um, which is kind of clean as, seen as a, a, a thinly veiled uh, swipe at the likes of, of Greta Thunberg, who actually was in the audience at the time, was pretty stone-faced. Um, he highlighted that, you know, when people, um, the prophets of doom, uh, were talking about overpopulation in the 60s and starvation in the 70s and uh, the world running out of oil in the 90s, none have come to pass. So he thinks that those who are calling uh, the, 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 the climate crisis as, as they see it is nothing more than that. Right, okay. Now, uh, in past years, there's always been a huge number of private jets ferrying people in and out of Davos, and there have been uh, lots of limos to take people to their swanky hotels and so forth. This year, people were asked to uh, think a bit more about sustainability, weren't they? Has that actually come to pass? Yeah, well, you're still having uh, hundreds of, of private jet flights into airports uh, surrounding uh, Davos, including um including Zurich Airport, which is about two or three hours up the road uh, by, by train. Um, and they would chop her in. And many of them would actually chop her in from Zurich or take a limo from, from Zurich itself. Now, the World Economic Forum is trying to establish itself as, as a carbon neutral this year. Um, it's highlighted that uh, those that kind of tank up in Zurich can get a kind of a more fuel efficient uh, jet fuel with, with lower emissions. They're talking about also, um, in fairness, they've also uh, sourced more food locally, um, more plant-based food, um, and where they haven't been able to kind of remove emissions, they're looking to kind of offset them elsewhere in, in projects such as, uh, as planting trees in other parts of the world. Right, OK. I hope you're keeping your carbon footprint uh, well down <laughs> um, during your stay there. Now, who, who's left to come? Who should we be watching out for? Yeah, so tomorrow, um, one we'll certainly be keeping an eye on, there's a, there's a, there's a piece on uh, digital tax, uh, digital taxation. This is a big is issue for a, Ireland, isn't it? A, a huge issue, and it's a huge issue for other countries as well. Um, you had Steve Nuchin on a panel earlier on this morning um, where he kind of took a aim at the UK, which is looking to bring in a digital taxation in April and basically highlighting if countries did something like that unilaterally, maybe they could unilaterally start taxing uh, cards being developed in other countries. Um, but, yeah, digital taxation is, is, is high on the agenda. Now, Sajid Javid, Javid was there as well, and the UK has, has made great play of the fact that uh, once they're outside the European Union, uh, you know, uh, with Brexit, that they'll be able to get a world-class trade deal with the United States. Yeah, but um, Mnuchin highlighted the, the whole taxation, digital taxation thing to him as well. Now, while Savage Javid said that they would proceed in, 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 in April, we will see. Mnuchin um, said that they'll have a sidebar conversation on that. And he also highlighted that uh, mm. the, 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 the president will be having conversations with Boris Johnson. Remember, on Monday, you had Emmanuel Macron in France um, pull back on introducing a digital digital taxation there after such a conversation with, with Donald Trump and, and basically waiting for an international kind of standard to be set. The OECD is obviously in charge of that. So tomorrow uh, we have a, a digital taxation panel which we'll be keeping a close eye on. Then we have Angela Merkel, who is a regular here at Davos, um, we'll be making a presentation. We have Finnish Prime Minister, we have Dutch Prime Minister and, and various other um, world leaders uh, taking the stage over the next few days. Okay, that's Angela Merkel's farewell, I presume, is it? I think it would be, yeah. 
Yeah, right. And from an Irish uh, perspective, in terms of Irish interests, are, are the IDA likely to say anything? So uh, the idea, it's, it's a closed event on the on the, uh, the the Thursday evening. We'll be speaking to the IDA chief executive Martin Shanahan later on this afternoon. Um, another interesting thing is uh, interesting Irish kind of interest is a, a West Cork teenager, Fionn Fiera, who won uh, Google um, uh, Science Forum uh, in 2019 for developing a technology that can actually remove microplastics from the from the water. He'll be presenting later on the week, so we'll try and pop along to that as well. All right. Okay. Well, uh, Joe, thank you for joining us. And all I can say is stay warm. <laughs> try to. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Joe Brennan, Dominic Coyle and Willie O'Dea for their contributions. Declan Collin produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.